Welcome to Lost in the Movies. This episode is covering Blade Runner 2049, the Denis Villeneuve film from 2017. It's a discussion with my friend and fellow film commentator Max Clark. I was hoping to uh, review Dune with him in a week. This is kind of a prelude to that film coming out, Denis Villeneuve's uh, follow-up, I believe. I don't think he's made anything in between. Dune tends to consume years of a director's life. But uh, I'm not sure if we'll be able to do that discussion. Um, Max has just opened up a uh, new location for the Bit Bar in Salem, a bar that he uh, owns where you can play arcade games and stuff. Really cool place, great food, uh, great uh, games and and kind of atmosphere. So check that out if you're in that area for sure. Uh, But I'm not sure yet if he'll be able to join me for that discussion. Uh, We'll be doing some discussion on a film in the next few months, but uh, that may be or may not be the one. But I will be discussing it in the next episode regardless. And in the previous episode, I discussed the film Arrival, Denis Villeneuve's uh, previous film before Blade Runner 2049. That was his first sci-fi, and now he's made three sci-fi films in a row. So here we'll discuss one of them. Before we get to that, uh, I do want to mention my Patreon also will be featuring a tie-in to Dune, to the David Lynch film, tying it to Twin Peaks around the time I released that Dune episode. So there's going to be a lot of Dune and Denis Villeneuve stuff uh, going on around my work. But here's some of the other stuff that I've been up to as well before we get to that main conversation. I just added an independent uh, Twin Peaks Cinema podcast feed. This is a new podcast that is sort of spinning off from this one, so I'll link that below. I put up the first five episodes, all of which were released uh, also on this feed as part of Lost in the Movies, but now you can find them over there as well. So uh, that they cover the uh, Mark Frost film Storyville, Tim Hunter's film River's Edge, and then three episodes that have capsules on various films by people who directed episodes of Twin Peaks or wrote uh, an episode. Uh, Those films are Halloween Town, Zellie and Me, Now and Then, The Escape Artist, The Wizard, Francis, Pay the Ghost, Heaven, After Dark, My Sweet, Codename Emerald, Losing Isaiah, and Matthew Blackheart, Monster Smasher. So I dig into uh, all of these films, some or many of which are somewhat obscure and uh, find connections between them and Twin Peaks. But as this podcast goes forward, it's going to focus more on classic films from Hollywood and around the world, sometimes contemporary titles, and have more extended discussions, uh, as I did with Storyville and River's Edge, about those films' connections to Twin Peaks. It's going to kick off with a series called What's in a Name, where I look at three of the big films that people have connected to Twin Peaks and uh, really dig into those connections there. So that will be launching in October, but the podcast feed itself is up. You can subscribe now. Uh, if you've heard some of these reviews before, or if you listen to those preliminary episodes, you can rate and review. I mean, you can do that if you haven't as well, but obviously you might want to experience the series first. And I encourage you to do that. It's going to have its own home so that it doesn't get too tangled up in what I'm doing over here, which is more uh, a wider approach to movies. But uh, that podcast, I think, will be great fun for anybody who loves Twin Peaks and loves or wants to learn more about uh, classic cinema. So check that out. Okay, so here's the other work I've been up to lately. On YouTube, I released Twin Peaks Conversations number one, uh, audio Twin Peaks with Twin Peaks Unwrapped hosts Ben and Brian, and then also Twin Peaks Conversations number two, uh, also just audio only, with David Bushman, who is the author of books on Mark Frost and Hazel Drew. 
And uh, those are the first halves of those conversations, actually a little less than half in both cases. The rest of the conversations are on Patreon for my $5 a month tier. That's the new reward that's replacing my Lost in Twin Peaks podcast. So those episodes are Patreon exclusive, part two of the Twin Peaks conversation with Ben and Brian of Twin Peaks Unwrapped and uh, of the one with David Bushman. So all of this will be linked below. Also on Patreon for my dollar a month tier, I opened up the uh, Lost in Twin Peaks episode uh, number 20 uh, that's on the one known as episode 25 where uh, Gordon Cole comes back to town and uh, finds someone at the diner. You know the episode if you've seen Twin Peaks. And I also put up a post called Lost in Twin Peaks is Complete. Full directory for Firewalk With Me. And that links to all of my Firewalk With Me uh, discussions, 12 hours of podcasts on that that I released for the $5 a month patrons. So all linked up for uh, uh, anybody interested in becoming a patron or higher or joining that higher tier there. Uh, also on Patreon, I put up a, a few free episodes. Uh, this was before my last podcast, but I forgot to mention them on there. So I'll mention them here. They were Eraserhead Archives. Uh, the journey through twin peaks podcast and other twin peaks connections was one of them. The other one was just other like film connections. So these were all the earlier works that I did on a razor I just read them or shared clips on these podcasts, made them public since they're already public works. I'm just putting them in an oral form. And then finally on my site, I continued my Mad Men season six viewing diary with episodes one and two on uh, called the doorway episode three collaborators and episode four to have and to hold. This is the season going into the big year of 1968 on Mad Men. I also put up a fall 2021 status update detailing all the things that I've been working on and have before me in this uh, autumn season coming up. So here's Blade Runner 2049, a discussion with Max Clark. And uh, afterwards, I'll share a little bit of feedback and then share a preview of what we'll be uh, diving into next week. I didn't hear you. You're early. You know, I've known a lot of your kind. All useful, but with you I sometimes forget. We didn't have any of you when I was a kid. You're not gonna kill me, are you? Depends. What's your model number? Officer K D6 3 dot seven. Come on home for your baseline. Let's begin. Ready? And blood black nothingness began to spin. Today I'm discussing Blade Runner 2049, and I'm going to be doing something a little unusual. I'm going to have a guest, and the guest is actually the patron who chose this film, and that's Max. He's going to introduce himself, and this is going to be a little bit of an unusual conversation format because we're going to be handing a microphone. Uh, back and forth because of technical difficulties. So uh, we'll sort of take turns with comments and responding to each other. So here's Max. I'll let him sort of set up the film um, for those of you who haven't seen it and are somehow listening anyways. Uh, my name is Max. Um, I love films. I've written a lot about them in my spare time. I used to have a little zine in college called Samurai Dreams. That was a lot of fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, now I'm just a regular working Joe, uh, which brings us to... Uh, character uh, played by Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049. Uh, so, you know, the story picks up uh, 30 years after the original, and the world has ostensibly only gotten worse. Um, there is no 
law outside of the police department and corporations. And much like Judge Dredd, you know, the world is the city. The world is Los Angeles. And outside of Los Angeles is nothing. Uh, the rest of the world is decimated, or at least that's what we that's what we see. And our main character is a Blade Runner. But Blade Runners now are a little bit of a different beast than they were in the first film. In the first film, uh, they had to seek out replicants who were hiding out among humans um, and uh, trying to make their way in the world in that they were uh, trying to pass off uh, themselves as humans. And replicants in this are very much um, a different beast. And uh, our main character, Kay, or, or Joe as he's called, um, their generation of replicants only obey. Um, it's not really clear how this is accomplished, but that's one of the many lovely little mysteries of the film. The model of Blade Runner that Kay is uh, hunts down the older model replicants, uh, which, you know, in the first film it was Nexus 7, and then, of course, the next generation was Nexus 8. And the Nexus 8s were left with open-ended lifespans. So that generation is somewhat old at this point. And uh, the film starts with uh, Kay hunting down a Nexus 8, played by Dave Bautista. And it's actually a scene that's taken from uh, the first script for the first Blade Runner. Um, it's really an intriguing scene and sets up this uh, central conflict um, that you know, any conscious being must face. Are we a collection of uh, of of ideas? Are we, you know, imbued of free will, or do we just follow the mechanistic order of the universe as it's presented to us? Is there any is there any real choice um, ever truly presented to us? I wanted to bring up something interesting at this point about this idea. For for one thing, in the original film, correct me if I'm wrong, the Blade Runners are supposed to be, they're ostensibly people hunting replicants, right? They're not replicants themselves. So in this film, the main character, who is a Blade Runner, is also himself a replicant. Um, so there's that sort of twist to it. It's been a long while since I've seen um, the first Blade Runner. And one thing I, re I know there's different versions and they give different impressions. One thing that I've sort of been led to believe just by discussions over the years is there's, there's a lot of controversy over the question of whether or not Decker himself is actually a replicant. And I seem to recall reading somewhere that one of the later cuts that, that Ridley Scott did, like maybe the last one, some people felt like it may have cleared up that ambiguity too much and maybe stated that he was a replicant. But I wonder if you could kind of clarify that for me and maybe for the listeners. Sure. So there were several different cuts of Blade Runner, um, and the theatrical version does really leave the question a lot more ambiguous. Yeah, the actual version that was released in theaters with the voiceover and the uh, the the happy ending where they drive off into a lush wilderness, you know, with a beautiful sunset and lots of trees, and it's very pretty. Um, so that's that's kind of the most. Uh, reviled, derided version of the film, but I mean, hey, it's it's here we are <laughs> talking about it all these years later. Uh, now, the the subsequent different cuts of the film that were released in the late '80s, early '90s, um, you know, led to the director's cut, in which there's a lost scene that's uh, put back into the film where Deckard is daydreaming at his piano about this vision of a unicorn running through a forest. 
And it's not clear whether or not it's just a daydream or a memory. I, I tend to think it's just a daydream um, because it's so fantastical, of course. But later in the film, the very end of the film, uh, Deckard is leaving his apartment with Rachel, and he comes across this tiny origami unicorn. And his uh, rival, I suppose you'd say, uh, in the Blade Runner unit is a guy named Gaff, who is constantly leaving these tiny little matchstick men and origami animals all over the place, kind of just as a, as a marker, I guess, as a, uh, as a way to tag the places that he's been. So it's a very clear sign that Gaff has been to um, Deckard's apartment. He knows that Rachel is there, and he not only knows that, but he knows that Deckard has had this vision of a unicorn, or he seems to be implying that. There's also a lot of other clues, um, such as uh, a moment where, you know, most of the replicants have this really interesting photographic effect where you can see uh, a sort of red glow coming from their pupils. Um, and there's a moment where, out of focus, uh, Deckard is given that glow in his eyes. So it's, it's pretty heavily implied um, by the director's cut, and the uh, subsequent final cut, which is what was released on the uh, Blu-ray in 2007, that Deckard is a replicant. And of course, Ridley Scott has gone on record saying several times saying that he is, and Harrison Ford also uh, just as vehemently says, no, he's not. So there is there's there is no, I would say, authorial uh, uh, <laughs> authority, I guess, uh, as to whether or not Deckard is or isn't a replicant. And, you know, the question is way more interesting than the answer. And I think that's really where, that's really where this film leaves that, that character's, um, you know, identity. That actually kind of leads to another point I wanted to bring up, um, which is an ambiguity in, in this film. The character of Joy, who is sort of a plaything for Kay slash Joe, the main character in this, um, she's this sort of domestic um, uh, hologram kind of that uh, he, you know, is, is able to fulfill all of his different fantasies. Like, she's always changing uniforms, so she's got, you know, one moment she's sort of the housewife, then she's sort of the, you know, the the uh, artsy girl or something, and then she's just uh, sort of a sex pot, and she can be all these different things he wants her to be. And I I think at certain points in the film, they're trying to imply that maybe there is some interiority there, even though she's a much, much simpler program so to speak than he is um so i'd like to hear your thoughts on that and then maybe i'll get some of my own and we can kind of go back and forth on that well i mean you know that's that's something that also goes back to the original um conception of the uh of the replicants as this uh you know biological workforce in the uh in the first film they clearly had some sort of psychological and emotional autonomy and in this film they expressly don't they follow orders. They obey. Now, they have uh, a certain degree of personality, but um, by and large, they just do what they're told by humans, by their masters. Um, and so that's really it's really uh, spelled out for you very clearly in the beginning of the film. Um, but I think that there's a lot of deliberate ambiguity as to Joy's particular type of autonomy. You know, Joy reminds me a lot of the other different personal assistance um, uh, software that exists today, such as Siri or Cortana on Windows. Um, oddly enough, Cortana is based off a video game character who is a, you know, female hologram, who also was given these uh, 
very sexual characteristics, which you know don't seem to make much sense. But in this, the context of this film, they make a lot of sense. Joy um, is, you know, the the film is of course full of advertisements. Uh, there's so many different advertisements for Joy, even ones that you might not even recognize at first. Um, her face and her appearance just are are everywhere in this film. Um, Joy is a product. Joy is something that is uh, sold, and apparently to to many people. It's not just like, you know, spinners are only for rich people. Replicants are a, uh, a, a sort of corporate uh, workforce, and of course, they you know some work for the police, but they're expensive. Um, Joy, apparently, is kind of like um, having a nice computer. You know, it's it's like that level of like material comfort. Um, Joy gives you conversation. Joy can be whatever she thinks that you want to be because she has very obviously has very um, you know powerful sensory abilities, and there's a really clever moment where uh, they are uh, on the rooftop of their apartment building in the rain and the rain is passing through Joy and so she is apparently thrilled by this because it seems as though oh I've never felt rain before but you come to realize like after a moment when it's she starts to exhibit rain on her hands you know oh wait a minute no that's not real she's just learning how she's just learning how to uh, accurately replicate this environmental uh, effect that she's never had to demonstrate before. It's a uh, it's a trick, you know. It's something that's very much uh, uh, in her abilities to do, but is not unique. Um, it is not you know not noteworthy necessarily. And you know another uh, way in which they sort of cleverly tell you that Joy is uh, you know has no autonomy really uh, because she's a genie in a bottle, is that her little, um, you know, dialogue scene with uh, with with Joe? She says, "Oh, I'm so happy when I'm with you." He says, "You don't have to say that, because he's playing Dollhouse, and he knows he's playing Dollhouse, and he also doesn't want to be confronted with that uh, coitus interruptus, with that moment in which he's told expressly, by the way, this thing that you're enjoying is fake." Um, and then it's interrupted anyway when her entire appearance is frozen from <laughs> the receipt of a voicemail message from his boss. I mean, she just has... There is no level of control um, that she has over herself, her uh, her appearance. She is only designed to um, give the user a pleasurable experience uh, that's the advertisement joy what you want to see what you want to hear yeah so that is that is a really interesting idea with that with that character and i mean the question almost of can we call her a character even um and i think so obviously there's been some criticisms of the film people felt like it was even though it's depicting a sort of the shallowness of a fantasy that it was maybe indulging it too much as well and all of that i think to me the interesting question that sort of plays into that is so obviously she doesn't have any real control. Like, as you were saying, the question is, does she have any actual autonomy or existence? Because that's the thing about the replicants is they exist. They may be programmed to be a certain way. They may be supposed to be something, but the mere fact of existing in the material world, we're given the sense, um, offers them or, or gives them somehow the capacity to be more quote unquote human. Like the fact that they are there 
you know, uh, interacting with the physical world and they have a, a corporeal form and everything like that. So the fact that Joy doesn't is sort of potentially puts her on a different level. For example, that extended sequence where they bring the prostitute up to the apartment and then she kind of inhabits her almost or, you know, um, if merges with her and is, is um, making love with Joe, although we don't actually see any sex. It's just sort of the lead up to that. But it's a very extended sequence. And the question is, you know, Max, you were saying, like, why do we spend that much time? Is it gratuitous? to just be sort of lingering on this moment if all it is is just sort of a, a program to, you know, to fulfill Joe's happiness. So my thinking is, I do think the film wants us to at least be uncertain about whether Joy has any interiority or autonomy or if she's just merely a, a flat projection. I think there almost has to be more ambiguity there than that. And I kind of like the fact that the film, you know, first of all, by having an actress you know, playing the part. It's not just a CGI sort of simulation or something like that. Part of the reason it has to be is not just so that all those sequences don't seem gratuitous. It's also because the film is positing this idea that these artificial beings um, are actually real. There's something real to them. And I don't think it can afford to set up distinctions within that. You know, I, I don't think it can say, well, that's true up to this point, because then it starts to sort of undercut the whole argument it's making. So I think for Joy to work within the film, for me, we have to believe that actually there is a possibility that even though she's, you know, ones and zeros, she's half the information, etc. She, you know, she doesn't have any corporal form, that there is still some sort of um, existence there that that has some sort of flickering of something we would call consciousness. She is to Joe as Joe is to the human world. And that if his relationship to the human world doesn't mean that he isn't human himself, the same sort of has to be true of her. Or I think it becomes a bit of a one-note gesture. She doesn't have uh, a quality of being in and of the world. Um, I think it's very important that that scene happens i mean you know the question is how long that scene goes on um i think it's really important that that scene happens because it shows it demonstrates that the very best that joy can do is provide an engaging tease and the engaging tease is to like a real you know tease as to a real companion a real uh, a real romantic companion or even just a real friend um, because she never offers Joe anything other than exactly what he wants to see and or hear. Um, and, you know, there's that scene uh, where she's like, oh, I told you you were special. I told you that you were this, you know, the, uh, uh, a loved person. You were really cared for. And, you know, clearly that's what Joe wants, and he's not getting it from Joy. He's not actually getting that uh, sense of uh, uh, love and feeling and companionship from Joy. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason why he is later confronted with his foolishness when he's standing in front of that you know, 40-foot hologram of Joy um, in you know, the foolishness of his uh, long indulgence in this fantasy in that if you are in the world and you're of the world, if you have a body, you can have that body and that life taken away from you. And, you know, everyone knows this. It's kind of like the 
the idea of the continuity of memory, right? It's like we all know in the back of our minds one day we're going to die. It's just a thing that we know. But because of our memory, you know, we have this act that we put on every day, like, oh, everything's great, everything's fine, we're just going to keep going on. And, you know, the, the thing about joy and about artificial intelligence, as this film posits, which I'd also like to make a very clear distinction that the replicants are not artificially intelligent. Um, they are organic beings um, endowed with uh, intelligence of humans. Um, so Joy is artificially intelligent. She is a wind-up doll and nothing more. She is the mere creation of uh, humanity. She can be uh, put into a little box and brought you know, with you in your pocket she can be 40 feet tall. She can be 10 feet tall. She can be, you know, your your girlfriend. She can be your, your confidant. She can be anything at all that you want or need her to be. And that's not real. I think then too much time is given to her, and it was a mistake to cast, uh, like, an actress instead of use some other technique. Because I think to spend that much time with her, one of two things would have to be true. Either she has some life of her own that, that it's interesting to examine, or she's a way of externalizing Joe's desires and insecurities and worries and fears, in which case I think it's a mistake to to have her as, as a separate actor. But I don't know. I'd be interested to hear what other people think about that. So if you've seen this film, if you have thoughts on Joy, please send uh, listener feedback, and we'll kind of – I'll tease this out in weeks to come with, uh, with other thoughts on it. What really strikes me about this film, and, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about uh, – you know, joy and reality and being in the world is the the physicality of the um, of the movie. In that, everybody that's you know all the real characters they have their very own very distinct way of um, walking through and and interacting with this uh, this world that they've you know that they inhabit. Um, and Kay is just very you know sort of dogged, dogged, not, you know, very, very, uh, clear choice of words. He's very dogged in his, uh, his, uh, mannerism, the way that he walks, he's just going somewhere and he's going to get there. Um, and, you know, uh, Ana de Armas, like as Joy is very, you know, light and flirtatious and very, um, very giddy. Um, and I feel like there are so many other, uh, uh, ways in which people, uh, exhibit their their position in this world through the way that they they move through it, um, and uh, you know you you kind of you kind of have to have uh, your central character Joe or, or Kay as the you know even keel by which you judge how everyone else is um, is acting or reacting, um, and I think that the way that that you know that again that wonderful first scene really shows you because he's just very evenly paced he's walking into this house slowly he's seeing this this farmhouse in the interior and he's you know kind of looking at this simple life that uh that the sapper morton character has and he sits calmly in a chair and he has this conversation with you know dave Bautista, who's standing and very slowly clenching his fist and you sort of feel that uh that physical power rising within you know dave Bautista. And then he gets into the conflict with, uh, you know, with with Kay, and they have this, you know, knockdown battle where they crash through a wall, and uh, you know, it's it's extremely brutal, and the violence in this film is uh, different, you know, than the violence of the first film in a very particular way. You know that they're both somewhat brutal, but the first film almost felt a little bit, a tiniest bit improvisational, the violence that is, um, or spontaneous rather. 
and the violence in this film feels very uh, metered, like it's following a, a, a clock or, or you know, a secret music. Um, and, you know, I, I, I quite like it. It's, it's very uh, exciting and engaging, but it's also really uh, bloody. And <laughs> Kay is bloody through a lot of this, a lot of this film. He's, he's beaten up and battered and bruised, you know, uh, a lot. He takes a lot of abuse. You inhabit the world through him, and you kind of have to wonder a bit, like, well, where, where is all this going inside of him? And you know, he really doesn't—he doesn't give much externally. And then, as you uh, uh, go through the film, and the, you know, it's it's somewhat revealed that this memory of his that he has as a child, where he hid a, a special wooden horse in a, in, you know, inside of a furnace. You know, he discovers that place where he hid the horse, and this memory of his was actually real, and all of that tension, all of those moments uh, of violence, uh, all of those bits of emotion that he has been holding inside of him start to just crawl to the surface, and he's physically shaking, you know, like he's having, like he's uh, going through hypothermia or something, but he's physically almost unable to maintain control anymore. Um, and, you know, you, you kind of have this sense that, like, He's just the ultimate um, person who's able to maintain their composure in a difficult situation. Uh, and so to see him broken in that very particular physical way uh, is is really interesting. Just based on how everyone else, you know, kind of like acts whenever they're, uh, you know, in distress or emotional. And of course, famously love is... <laughs> sheds a single tear every in almost every scene that she's in. It's a very unique, yeah, it's a very unique uh, acting choice. Why do you think that is that that either the director, or the actress, or whoever decided to have love cry, considering how sort of cold and cruel she is in so many ways? Like, what do you think is the significance of that? I think that kind of like, much like Kay, they both have the same sort of like combat conditioning. Like, they're not going to cry out in pain or react when they're, uh, they're being threatened. Um, but they, there's other, there has to be, just because they're biological beings, there have to be other sort of like outlets for their, um, for their distress or for, you know, their emotional interiority. Um, and for Kay, it's that just sort of like almost, again, almost like hypothermic shaking um, where he can just barely, you know, contain his composure. And for Joy, you know, she, or not for Joy, I'm so sorry, but for Love, I mean, she just... She's so composed, and you can see the muscles on her face are just so incredibly tensed up when she's having, you know, like in the scene where she's uh, uh, interrogating uh, Robin Wright Penn or, you know, Lieutenant Joshi. Um, that I think that tear is that, that's that, it's that kind of like, um, you know, it's kind of like the Greek chorus masks, you know, like the, the just the, the, the masks that they would wear. It's like, it's not, it's a very particular type of, uh, you know, sign that there is an interiority to them. There is actually something that they cannot help but betray that lives inside them. Um, you know, I, Do you think she enjoys the crying at all? Because there seems to be something almost like sadomasochist about it in a way. Like the fact that she'll cry, but then she enacts the same violence. And it doesn't seem like she's distressed that this is happening, but she's upset and she enjoys it maybe or something. I don't know. I think that, you know, with um, that with Love's crying, I mean, I, I don't think that she, it doesn't bother her in the slightest. She doesn't ever wipe away a tear or use a napkin or a tissue or anything. 
it's just a thing that happens and she's aware of it. It's like a tick. Um, and <laughs> in terms of her uh, subjecting other people to violence, I think she does take pleasure in it in that she has been conditioned by uh, by Wallace to assume a type of superiority. And obviously that has a lot to do with, you know, the class and politics issues of this uh, of this film and and she has power she has extreme power she can do whatever she feels like there's one point where she walks into the police office and uh, or the police station rather and uh, she takes these uh, these the bones of Rachel and she's about to leave and she actually has the paperwork to do so when this you know middling functionary just comes up and says oh uh, hey what you doing and she kills him for no reason uh, and then uh, later in the film, you know, there's no repercussions for it. And then later in the film, she goes to, uh, you know, Lieutenant Joshi and is like, where's Kay? And breaks this glass inside of her hands. Um, it must be extreme pain. Um, and, uh, you know, she's saying, where is he? And and she's really inhabiting this, this position of like, I can do whatever the f- I feel like doing at any given time. There's nothing you can do to stop me. Uh, except that, you know, Joshi has information that, uh, that, that love wants. Um, and, you know, there's also the suggestion in that scene, they think that, that Joshi might herself be a replicant because she's not reacting. But, I mean, that's, that's an, and that's, I think, also an, an interesting question. I'm not really sure if there's a good answer to that. There is one tell, um, that she is, uh, perhaps, um, a human in that she is uh, really emotive <laughs> in that she, she goes from zero to screaming uh, for apparently no reason um, from one scene to the next. Uh, and then there are scenes where she's calm and cool as a cucumber and just couldn't give less of it about being stabbed in the stomach, you know, you know or it, it, she, she varies wildly. And I think that kind of like um, emotional range hints that she is a human. Also that she really takes delight in ordering Joe around. Um, you know, love love loves to be told what to do. Love loves to be given a mission and sent off somewhere to do something. And Joshi clearly gets uh, delight from telling Joe what to do. You know, there's, a, there's that scene where they're in Joe's apartment and she's saying like, oh, well, would you divulge that precious childhood memory if I told you it was in order you know it's this really playful line that she's uh, given with such relish um, and she really inhabits that position I don't know I, I don't think we're really given the sense that replicants can be megalomaniacal or that can be uh, truly evil or deceptive I mean I think ultimately love is just a tool and she she could not exceed her conditioning, whereas Joe did exceed his conditioning. For the film to really work well, I think we need like one human character to kind of judge everybody else off of, aside from the Jared Leto maniac. And so I think I like the idea that, yeah, she is human, and that's the contrast. In the first film, there's sort of this divide between humans and replicants. Almost everybody in this movie is a replicant, and even the ones who aren't. I think Joshi is like the only character we really spend any time with, other than briefly uh, the Jared Leto character who is um, a human, and even she, as you said, might be a replicant. Yeah, there are replicants everywhere. And in the first film, they were specifically, I mean, the reason that they were so special is that they were banned uh, from Earth. 
and that obviously the laws have changed and uh, society has changed a bit now where it's just, it's, it's an open thing. You know, people, people need a servile class in order to, you know, maintain the, 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 the status quo and that servile class is replicants and replicants are everywhere. They are in every service sector. Um, you know, they, they're the plumbers, they're the, uh, they're the, they're some of the police officers, of course, and they are, uh, you know, people who work in, uh, in ways that serve humanity. They're just a, a, a separate class of people now, rather than like, um, rather, rather than an endangered species. You know, they, they used to be relegated only to the off world and now they are uh, everywhere on earth. Um, and I think it's kind of heavily implied that that's the only way in which genuine humans, you know, would be able to survive is, you know, with the, uh, with the aid of replicant labor. You know, the movie is, I would argue, very political. Um, and there are a lot of different moments in the movie where you're kind of brought back into how similar their world is to ours. I mean, you know, we go through, uh, you know, I work in the restaurant industry. I know a lot of, I know a lot of people who are here in the United States, uh, you know, without proper, proper documentation. They deserve as much, you know, uh, rights and empathy as, as any other human being, you know, they, they have a, a right to exist and to make a living and to be here. Um, and, you know, obviously not just in, in terms of immigration, but, uh, you know, just, just, there are so many different castes and classes of people who all over the world, you know, we kind of just accept that there is an order of things and that order includes violence against certain groups of people. Um, that is, that is just the status quo. And so I think that part of what this movie does so brilliantly is kind of like throw that a little bit into relief. Um, and that we we all, to a certain degree, casually accept that there are, you know, disposable populations. And that's inherently wrong. And that everyone, you know, everyone deserves the right to live. Everyone deserves empathy. Everyone deserves uh, uh, autonomy um, and is worthy of it. And, um, yeah, so I, I, in terms of the replicants being everywhere in the world, I think it's great. I think it adds, I think it adds a lot of weight to the, to the, um, to the film and to the film's emotional message. Do you have any parting words or final thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I would just say that this is, you know, I'm I try to uh, watch a fair amount of movies every year, but unfortunately this year I did not get to go out to the uh, to the movies that much. But this was far and away my favorite, you know, film of the uh, of the year, um, just because as a fan of the original, I felt like they really nailed the tone um, and. You know, it, it's it's a return to a world that I have a lot of fondness for, and also I felt like just the the inherent emotional uh, message of the film, which is you know that us human beings, whether or not we are you know created human or if we are born that way, you know, are worthy of uh, of of respect, and we are worthy of of your love and empathy, and uh, you know, it's it's a very it's a very touching message for a year, which felt like every you know three days was punctuated by you know some bit of horrible news about the way that uh, you know we continue to treat each other. Um, so I, I I truly loved it, and uh, yeah, I hope the discussion continues.
So this Blade Runner conversation was originally recorded early in 2018, and then near the end of 2018, I released it publicly, but just on my YouTube channel. I didn't have a podcast feed then. And I received some comments uh, on it there. Here's something that some of the uh, listeners uh, had to say about it. And then finally, we're going to end with something I posted uh, the Blade, when I posted the Blade Runner 2049 audio, audio podcast um, publicly on YouTube. There were a couple responses. Someone said, I love the scene with Love ordering fire while having her nails done, and I see great similarities between Joy and some Mobius artwork, especially in the case of Venice. And I also received a comment on the Blade Runner podcast that said, Concerning Joy, there is an interesting detail narratively. Joy is a product that becomes everything you want. Kay wanted her to be real. See what I mean? So that's definitely intriguing. Uh, you know, can he actually, can, is there a glitch in the programming that undoes the programming in a way? They also, they also write, love, love's tears have to do with the fact that in order to stay loyal to her boss, she must destroy her unique place beside him. Since Wallace strives to create something much superior to love, and it is love who he bestows this mission on. In the scene when Joshi tells love that the child is dead, Love sheds tears of joy and relief, since her place beside Wallace is no longer in danger. That's how I've read it anyway. And so that just leaves Dune of this uh, Denis Villeneuve sci-fi trilogy left to discuss. So I'm going to be seeing that film this weekend, and uh, we'll put up the discussion around next Wednesday. And this is a kind of a notable occasion for me, because uh, certainly it'll be the first time I've gone to a theater to see a film uh, in in uh over a year and a half but also even just discussing new releases isn't something i do that often anymore and it's going to become a more frequent thing because every month on this podcast it's it's going to change form a little now that twin peaks and mon left to the movies are spinning off into their own feeds uh, it's going to go back to the two episodes a month schedule every other week and it will vary between a new release and just something older that i want to discuss or share an old discussion of. So Dune will be first up, and after that, I, I don't know. It's a bit of a mystery spot. Whatever comes out each month that sounds interesting, there's a discussion going around, I'll see and discuss. So I was looking this up just because I was curious how long it's been since I've discussed uh, uh, new releases. You know, starting in 2008 to 2010, I would, when, when I started a, uh, my, my film blog, lostinthemovies.com, actually at the time called The Dancing Image, it didn't even have the same name, uh, I would review new movies fairly regularly, but not as often as other bloggers did. Like, for many, that was their whole staple. They would uh, review all the new releases coming out. Uh, it was sort of like being a film critic on a blog, but I was always kind of more interested in digging into the past and various subjects or obsessions or things that came up that interested me versus kind of steadily following the flow of uh, of product to the theater i was already a little disillusioned with the uh, with that approach at this time having grown up you know going to the theaters all the time and reading the box office reports and really being into that uh, kind of faded with me for me a little bit but uh, so there was a period even in early 2010 though where i did try to do that i actually created a whole separate blog in addition to the one i had where I would just review new releases coming out every uh, weekend and then also like new to DVD releases at that time. Uh, so there'd be like a couple reviews a week and that only lasted, I think, five or six weeks. And then I was done, I was burnt out 
uh, on a lot of things, but that approach included. I did try to pick up the habit again in 2014. I was going to review like a new release film every month or so. And even then I was just going to second run theaters. I know I saw Wolf of Wall Street and reviewed that. And that was like months and months after it came out. So even then it wasn't that that fresh. And that was right when Twin Peaks hit me with a gale force and totally derailed any other plans I had for the site or my writing. So at this point, the only time I really engage with new releases at all is uh, as film capsules on my Patreon podcast, usually just like a minute or two of like, oh, I saw this, here's a few words on this, and then moving on. And it, and those are also mostly uh, TV uh, films that I see on TV since I haven't been to a theater since uh, February 2020. And they're usually documentaries that are like made for TV as often as part of a series, even like a front line or something. The most recent uh, new release I've discussed of any sort was like an A&E biography program on the wrestler Booker T to give you an example of what's mostly coming across my radar. But I, I did actually look up in my kind of archives, what were the last times I had any sort of extended discussions in various forms or topics. And here's what I came up with. The last time that I engaged with uh, new release films anywhere was on Patreon, uh, films that had just come out at least in the past few months. That was What Did Jack Do, the David Lynch short with the monkey on Netflix. And even that was like an older film. It had premiered at festivals around 2016 or 17, but just hadn't uh, appeared in uh, in like a public forum until that point. And then also I reviewed uh, four recent releases, The Irishman, um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Parasite, and uh, what was the other one? It was four films dealing with class violence in their in their uh, climax. Joker was the other one. And even in that case, again, those were more capsules. They were shorter reviews, like five or six minutes each, and focusing on certain aspects of the movies and grouping them together. So <clears throat> it wasn't quite what I'm going to be doing on this podcast going forward. And so I kept kind of digging. And the last time that I discussed any new media publicly like as it was being released was tv stuff in tw- and that even that was back in 2019 i did the new seasons of veronica mars and true detective at viewing diaries following those along the last time that i discussed new release films publicly was uh and i'm talking even recent i shouldn't say new release like recent films get out zama Lady Bird, mary shelley and black panther uh, i reviewed on my site in late 2019 and those were already like a year or two old at that point. Black Panther was the most recent of them. And even that was a year and a half old. Uh, My last time that I uh, talked about a film that was even within the past year was the documentary OJ made in America in 2017, when I made a video essay about that film. It was timed for the award season where it was in contention. So it was still kind of a fresh topic, but even that, you know, months, months after its initial release, and so looking on, uh, you know, on Patreon, I did release that review of Sorry to Bother You that I've now released publicly. That did come out around the time that film came out, but a few weeks later in, in 2018. And uh, same thing with the films The Giver and Boyhood, which came out in like the late summer of 2014. And I put up a dual review of those, like a written review on my site in uh, September 2014. So kind of relatively, but when I really look for like the last time I discussed a film within a few days of its wide release, they have Lincoln, which was about a week and some change later in 2012. And then The Dark Knight Rises, that was the closest I could come going back almost a decade. So 
nine years ago that summer, uh, this, the, the dark Knight rises, I posted my review or really essay discussion about the, the sort of political tenor of the film, uh, three days after its release. So that, that was the last time I had any kind of, uh, proximity to the film actually hitting the zeitgeist uh it, you know the the moment that it hit the zeitgeist so now i'll be doing that with dune we'll see how it fares i think there's some trepidation given past adaptations but uh, i'm certainly curious to see what villeneuve does with it okay uh making a change at the last minute i mean more than the last minute i'm actually recording this and adding it a week later so if you listen to this podcast before uh the, the you know within the first week it was up you heard the outro trailer to Dune and all of that. Well, after all that discussion of, oh, this is the first new release I'm going to see and all the lead up with Denis Villeneuve, I found out the film's not coming out till October 22nd. They changed the date from what I had originally seen. So, surprise, not going to be seeing Dune for the next episode after all. Instead, I'm going to cover the John Carpenter film, Halloween. I have a patron recording of that, which I've been wanting to share, and I was going to share it at the end of October, but I'm going to share it now instead. And something else will be the new release for October, and Dune will probably be in November. So sorry for the confusion. Just figured I'd add this to clarify. Exploring uncharted territory. And totally charted. Just talk. Sure, sure. Mm-hmm. The only reason she babysits is to have a little... Halloween.